Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, with a message titled, The Great Commission. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 28, 16 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I was recently engaged in a conversation with a group of friends and we're seated in a coffee shop and our conversation ranged from, you know, state of the church, a number of troubling events also made the agenda. You know, in the midst of the discussion, two people remarked that this must be a sign that we're living in the last days. Surely the coming of Jesus is right at the door. Let me say I love that sentiment. I I love being with friends and brothers in the faith and, and hear them speak with a longing heart over the second coming of Jesus. I mean, that's our faith. All of history is moving to a final point. Jesus will return. The nations of the earth will mourn. He will establish his eternal kingdom. This is the blessed hope of every believer. But even while I love that sentiment, I'm always slow in chiming in that the coming of Jesus is going to happen very soon now in my lifetime. I have no way of knowing that. And besides the present hour, although it may lead to great difficulties and may lead people into suffering, and of righteousness being thrown into the mud, and of you know upending of the present order of things, I don't know if that means that the coming of our Lord is at hand. I, I like to remind people that if I had been alive to see the rise of communism or the rise of Nazism in the Second World War, I would have had reason to believe that the coming of Jesus was at hand then. Or I think back to the historical counts of the Black Death in Europe, or even go back further when the Roman Empire was collapsing and barbarians were launching the world into a new dark age, would I not have then thought that the coming of Jesus was at hand? There have been very many times in history when it must have seemed that the world was ending and that Christ would return. Look, I mention all of this because as we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew mentions that Jesus spoke of the end of the age. Indeed, the words, the end of the age, are the very last words of the book of Matthew. This age, this world will not endure. It will come to an end. It will pass away. Listen to how Peter summarizes it in 2 Peter 3, 8 to 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Notice Peter's sequence. Don't overlook, he says, that God's timetable will be different than ours. And that's very important. Second, don't overlook that God is extending the time so that the maximum number of people can be saved. Take that matter into account. And third, don't overlook that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, quickly, suddenly. And when he comes, it will come as he brings to an end the present order of things. Having said that, and before going to the end of Matthew's gospel, let me just for a moment take you back to Tuesday of Passion Week. The day is coming to an end. Jesus and his disciples are sitting on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, looking over the valley at the imposing temple on the other side. The disciples are remarking at its beauty, and especially the massive stones that form the foundation. And Jesus responds by telling them that very soon now, not one stone will be left on the other. And the disciples are shocked. They then ask, exactly when will it happen? 
Furthermore, they can't imagine that if the temple were about to be destroyed, that this would not be the sign of the end of the age. Surely when that happens, Jesus will return and the kingdom will then begin. Now, please know that the things that Jesus spoke of then, those things were accomplished in AD 70. It's now been many years since that and the end of the age did not arrive. So why do I mention that? Because as they were discussing the end of the age, Jesus spoke specifically to that matter, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And that's precisely the theme that Jesus returns to as we get to the end of the book of Matthew. And as is often the case, and as we've seen many times now, Matthew gives us a very short, abbreviated account of both the crucifixion and the resurrection. And that same is also true with the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Indeed, he seems to collapse the entire 40-day ministry of Jesus after the resurrection into about two verses. And those verses are found in Matthew 28, 16, and 17, which says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, you'll notice that Matthew skips over Jesus' conversation with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He skips over the two meetings with his disciples in Jerusalem when they were in that locked room. They were there for fear of the Jews. And he doesn't tell us about Thomas' struggle to believe. Matthew passes by all that data. Indeed, the Gospels contain about a dozen resurrection appearances of Jesus, and Matthew has very little on that. But Matthew, in his abbreviated form, takes us away from Jerusalem and then back to Galilee, where Jesus had begun his ministry. You'll remember that those were a part of Jesus' original instructions. The disciples were to go to Galilee, and there Jesus would meet with them, and he did. You know, John records the incident when they were out fishing. Jesus has stood on the shore, telling them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat, and they do so. You know, after a night of fishing and catching nothing, suddenly their nets are now full, and Jesus is on the shore roasting fish on a charcoal fire, and that morning he feeds his disciples breakfast. See, no doubt, during this time, these post-resurrection appearances, there's so much to talk about, so much to explain, so many questions to answer. Peter had to be forgiven and reinstated and helped to see his mission. Luke says that during this time, he opened their minds to understand the scripture. That is, he helped them to see the true intent of the First Testament from Genesis to Malachi, that Christ must suffer, that he must die, that he must be raised on the third day. I mean, all manner of things were finally falling into place. Finally, the disciples were beginning to comprehend the things that they didn't understand before. These were amazing days. But Matthew passes by all of those events and simply reduces them to one line. He says the 11 went to Galilee. You know, it's 11 now, it's not 12. Judas has gone, as Luke would say in Acts 1.25, he's gone to his own place, to the place where he awaited the final judgment of God. But the 11 were being trained now. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus directed his disciples to go on to a mountain somewhere. He doesn't tell us where that mountain is. You know, it is possible, at least in my mind, that they went actually to the mountain outside of Capernaum the very place where he had preached the Sermon on the Mount. See, that is possible. And it's also possible that when Paul spoke of the fact that Jesus on one occasion spoke to more than 500 at a time, you know, this might have been the place where he did that. Now, if that hypothesis is correct, and please, it's only a hypothesis, but but that would explain the phrase, but some doubt it. 
See, by this time, we can be sure that the ones that doubted, those weren't the eleven. They would rather have been some in the crowd that had come to hear him preach. No doubt, as they sat and watched Jesus, some must have stayed in their own worldview. That worldview said, dead men don't rise. We know Jesus was crucified. We see this man standing before us. He looks like Jesus, but how can it be Jesus? See, some doubt it, even as some will still doubt today. But it's here that Matthew introduces us now to the Great Commission. Matthew doesn't tell us exactly where or when Jesus spoke the words of the Great Commission. We know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, at the end of the the 40-day period of time where he had numerous post-resurrection appearances, so now Jesus goes into heaven and he was then on the Mount of Olives right outside of Jerusalem. So might Jesus have said the words that Matthew records for us, the words of the Great Commission, and then right after that ascended to heaven? Well, yes, that's possible. Reading Luke, we might think that way. And Luke, in the book of Acts, tells us that Jesus commanded them to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came, and then they would be witnesses to the very ends of the earth, and then he ascended to heaven. So what Matthew records might well have been said at the very same time, but in truth, we don't actually know. It might have been that he had spoken on this matter on multiple occasions during those 40 days, and Jesus told them about their mission and reinforced it over and over again until he ascended into heaven. In truth, we don't know the exact timing of the words that Jesus spoke that Matthew records for us, but we do know that the last words that Jesus spoke that are recorded in the book of Matthew are indeed a record of the last commands of Jesus. This is what the disciples were to be doing until they reached the very end of the age. And in truth, it's also what we should be doing to the very end of the age. Last month, our friends at InDoubt launched the InDoubt Show with host Andrew Marcus, and it hit the ground running. The show kicked off with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld and included a segment called Dangerous Doctrines, where Dr. John and Andrew confront and unpack, unravel, shed light on some of the crooked theological thinking out there today. The In Doubt Show also recently featured a conversation with a co-creator of one of the most popular current Christian dramatic series, The Chosen. Just a few of the great selection of guests so far and many more to come. So stay tuned for new engaging conversations with Christian experts and leaders ready to speak into the relevant issues of life, faith, and culture young adults are facing today. The In Doubt Show, online at indoubt.ca or at the In Doubt YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so never to miss a new episode. So let's read the very last words of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's take these wonderful words one step at a time. The first, that is the preface to his command, are the words upon which the command stands. 
Jesus says, all authority, whether it's the authority structures of this earth or it's the authority in heaven itself, which is the dwelling place of God, all this authority has been given to me. And what Jesus is claiming here is that all power, regardless of where you find power, is under his lordship. That is, regardless of where power is found, in earthly realms of human government, on the battlefield, in the boardrooms where massive business deals are being made, or in the diplomatic core of the earth's governments, no power can be exercised that does not come under his dominion. If anything at all is done, It is because he, the one who has ultimate power, has permitted it to be done. Now, when Jesus says it has been given to him, he means that God the Father has granted the Son this power. That is, now that Jesus was crucified and became the only one who can save from the power of sin, now that he's become the mediator between God and man by his work on the cross and by virtue of his resurrection, the Father has granted Jesus authority over all things. And that's not just a statement, it's a fact. Listen, before the cross, Jesus had already been exercising his power, power over demons, power over disease as he heals the sick and gives sight to the blind, power over nature as he walked on water and now in the cross. He has demonstrated that he has power to reconcile men and women to God. Only he has that power. And furthermore, by his resurrection, he has demonstrated that he has power over death and power over life. Matthew's already told us that when Jesus was raised from the dead after his resurrection, a number of the departed saints who were bodily raised after Christ was raised gave testimony in Jerusalem that Jesus had the power to raise the dead. Let me make sure we grasp this. No man in history has done this before, none. If we make the claim that there are other ways to God other than Jesus, we deny that the authority of Jesus is over all things. But should we doubt that he has that power, this unrestricted, this universal sovereignty over everything, please consider the evidence. Has he not demonstrated his power? By now the disciples understood this but it had to be highlighted and reinforced for them over and over again so they wouldn't forget. Well, why does Jesus say this right before the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me. And the answer is the apostles are to know that when they go into the world and when they encounter opposition and even when they encounter the the potential of death, when they encounter every bit of stiff resistance that is waiting them, whatever happens to them, it will happen under the power of Jesus. Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have authority over all things. You trust me. So, and with these words, Jesus now gives the command. And as to the command, I know that's not readily apparent as we read it in English, but in the original Greek, it's very apparent. The Great Commission doesn't consist of a series of four commands. You know, reading it in English, we might be forgiven for thinking that's how it reads. So, we might think the first command, go. That is, be on mission. The second command, make disciples. The third command, baptize them. Then comes the fourth command, teach them everything. Makes a great sermon, by the way. But in truth, the Greek has only one imperative here, only one command. The other words, to use layman's terms, they're descriptors as to how to keep that one command. So let's begin with the one command. It's the command, make disciples. The command is they're to make followers of Jesus from all the nations of the earth. To make disciples is different than simply making converts. 
You know, in modern terms, we often think of a convert as someone who indicates they'd like to receive Jesus as their personal Savior. But a disciple is a follower of Jesus. You remember Matthew chapter 8, verse 19. It tells us that a scribe came to him and he said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And interestingly enough, Jesus responds, You know, it must have surprised the man. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, people were puzzled over that statement. I mean, what exactly was Jesus saying to this scribe? Let me interpret his words. It must be understood to me that this would-be disciple must embrace the idea that to follow Jesus would mean to let go of a life of comfort and of wealth. It meant that one had to find Jesus more valuable than everything else, more valuable than wealth, security, predictability, anything. To make yourself into a disciple is to make yourself into someone who finds in Jesus a treasure chest of holy joy, like the man who found a treasure hidden in a field for his joy, gladly sold everything he had, bought the field. And a disciple, therefore, is someone who finds Jesus more valuable than anything, even life itself. See, I still remember that, that time you know, in my ministry life. A woman was being baptized in my church, and she informed us that at the moment of her baptism, her family had agreed they would sever all ties with her. And she said it was okay with her because even though she loved her family deeply, the value she had discovered in Jesus outshone the value of her family as dear as they were. A disciple of Jesus is the man or the woman, the boy or the girl, that recognizes that reconciliation with God wouldn't be possible unless Christ had died for their sins, unless Christ had been raised from the dead. And so enjoy enjoy. Listen, we gladly give up everything so that we might cling to him. And Jesus told his disciples that it is his will that followers of his be made from every group of people on earth, this kind of followers. So listen to Revelation 5, 7 to 12. It says, and he, that is Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, listen to the song, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads of thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Look, this work of making disciples from every people group under heaven, that work will carry on until it is completed and those people are presented before the throne and are claimed for Christ alone. I put it another way, only then will the end come. And so in order for this to occur, the apostles must go. Go, therefore. Go to the nations. See, missions is the heartbeat of the church, for unless we're involved in bringing the gospel where it's never been heard, we're going to delay the second coming and we'll be in danger of disobeying our Savior. Now, how are the disciples made? Well, Jesus mentions two things that they are to do as they're going. First, they are to baptize them in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, here Jesus spells out the formula for our baptism. 
And I know that later in the book of Acts, we hear people being baptized in the name of Jesus. And did the apostles, you know, misunderstand the instructions Jesus gave them? Well, no, no, they understood him very well. See, there's every reason for believing that the apostles, along with others after them, baptized people according to the formula that Jesus had given us. They were baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. But by what authority did they baptize them? And that's what Luke explains in Acts. In Acts, Luke tells us they were baptized in the name of Jesus. That is, they were baptized under the authority of the name of Jesus. We have every reason, however, to believe that they were baptized in the triune God. So why baptize? Well, they did so to proclaim, as Paul would later describe it, to proclaim that these people had died to this world and to sin, and they were now raised with Christ. Baptism is the public proclamation that it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. And so baptism is an essential statement of the followers of Jesus. We belong to him. And next, Paul tells them they are to make disciples by teaching the newly formed disciples everything that Christ has commanded them. Leave nothing out. If I were to put that in practical terms, make sure that every single disciple understands all of the New Testament for the New Testament contains the actions of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, his promises, his commands, as well as the practical implications of everything that Jesus taught. Essentially, become experts in the New Testament. And with that comes the promise. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the comfort. Christ has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He will give us all the power that we need to complete the task he has commanded us to complete. Indeed, may we finish the work he has given us to do. And indeed, come Lord Jesus, bring an end to this age, and may your kingdom come. Thanks so much, John, for a great message, a great series. Let me ask you, as Matthew ends his book with the Great Commission, why is that so important? Why is that so significant for the follower of Jesus? It's important that all of us recognize that um, not only is this good news for us, if we are at all loving, if we care uh, for the plight of so many millions of people, we will bring the good news of Christ to them. It's never enough to simply believe it. We must share it. Christ demands it of us, and love also constrains us to do this, to bring the gospel to the world. Let's be about the master's business. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever been too timid to share the good news of Jesus Christ? It's a common concern and a very old obstacle. The reasons for our caution and reticence are varied. We don't want to face a negative response, or we don't know how to answer people's questions or rebuttals. Our fear can become so large it swallows our voice. We all need help in speaking our faith. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada offers a free book by Matt Smethurst called Before You Share Your Faith. It's not about an evangelism method, It speaks to our motives and our fears. It it addresses our concerns and offers practical help. So to request your free copy, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.com.
www.ctcc.ca. Let it encourage you to share the good news of Jesus. And please consider offering a financial gift to support the ministry this month.